Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Bonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Robin Wigglesworth is the Financial Times Global Finance Correspondent and the author of Trillions, the newly released book on the past, present and future of passive investing. In this episode, we discuss how Robin ended up in FT after several lucky breaks and serendipity, why he decided to write a book about the rise of index funds, the few investors Robin believe can beat the index game, his best advice for people trying to learn about the financial markets, and how he sees the future of index and ETFs. Let's start the episode. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies, which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Robin, thank you so much for joining the podcast. No, thanks so much for having me on. I wanted to start maybe a fun place, but you recently changed your Twitter name. I guess it was just for fun, but what did you do that? Yes, I, I think gimmicky Twitter names are a little bit silly. I see a lot of people do it around Halloween, change it to some, a spooky McWigglesworth or something. Uh, but I, I watched some of the video clips from Facebook's rebranding to Meta, and they were so ridiculous. I, I, it was too tempting to mock it. So yes, I changed my handle to Robin Metaworth, which actually does seem to work pretty well. Well, what do you think about the name change? And do you think it's obviously there are several thoughts going into this? I mean, obviously there's a rebranding, but it's also a, a big shift to the Web three platform and era. Yeah, I, I think. My mental model for name changes is that it's usually an act of desperation. It's when a company has kind of run out of ideas with what to do. Uh, oh, well, let's change the name. Uh, and clearly, so Facebook's fundamental challenge is that it's seen as a bit of a boomer platform, right? Young people are not on Twitter, on Facebook. And, and Facebook knows this and sees this as uh, you know, an existential threat. I think Facebook is going to be with us probably forever, but I can see why they worry. And with a name change like this, maybe they try to regain some of the edginess that they had in their early years. Uh, I don't see how, you know, I, I won't comment on the technical possibilities of like how far this can go and what time frame. Uh, but I struggle to think that uh, for the time being, this is going to help reinvigorate 
Facebook make it any more cool or any less of a target for various angry politicians and regulators around the world? It's going to be very interesting. We're going to talk a lot about your new book, of course, but just going back, how early did you find an interest in finance? Can you remember sort of the age or was it by coincidence? I can remember, well, I can't remember the exact date, but there was one very specific day when it happened. And the dirty secret of a lot of financial journalists, at least of my generation, is that we never cared about finance. We never did. Uh, you know, I grew up, I'm a you know, child of the 80s and 90s. Uh, I wanted to be a war correspondent, foreign correspondent. And I studied international relations. I studied history. I studied political Islam, a bit of international law. Um, and I was actually going to be a, a journalist in the Norwegian army because uh, we have conscription in Norway, as you know. And I thought that sounded a little bit more interesting. But I wasn't sure about journalism. But I did have a part-time job whilst doing my master's at the LSE at The Guardian, where essentially I did what is called sub-editing, but it's the lowest form of sub-editing. I was just making sure picture captions were correct and things like that. But I was doing night shifts, and The Guardian has a very good media section where lots of media jobs were, were posted. And idly one night I was reading through it, I saw there was a posting for a financial journalist in Dubai. And... I had actually no interest in financial journalism. We had had one city editor from one of the big English papers come to my journalism school to give a talk. And his sales pitch was essentially, you get to have really long, boozy lunches, which, you know, who doesn't like long, boozy lunches? But it's not what young idealistic journalist students want to hear, right? We want to change the world. We want to be war correspondents. Uh, but I didn't know anything about finance, but I wasn't sure about going back to Norway and I thought it could be interesting. I always like doing new things. I like challenges. I like learning stuff. And Dubai is the least Middle Eastern part of the Middle East, but I knew I wanted to go there. So I thought, screw it, I'll apply. And I was still very skeptical until I flew in. Yeah, absolutely awful salary. Put to work like a hamster immediately. But my very first day, I interviewed a local sheikh about Islamic reinsurance. Technically, it's called retakaful. Uh, because Islamic insurance is called takaful. And it is as wildly exotic as it sounds. But I just loved it. I just thought it was fascinating. Here I was, this guy who knew absolutely nothing, interviewing some local sheikh, sitting there in his thobe, talking about Islamic reinsurance and learning about like what the like what the you know Sharia says about financial principles and how you can reinterpret this in modern context and how this works in practice. And I was just hooked. So that's how I ended up in financial journalism, um, entirely by chance. And I did get to be a war correspondent for a brief period a little bit later, but uh, the first cut was the deepest. I mean, that's super interesting because uh, I was about to ask you about the question how you ended up in, in Dubai, but the question was also linked to the lessons learned between, I don't know, uh, skill versus luck, because you had like a great take on that as well. Yes, um, Look, I mean, it's popular to say that you, you make your own look and you can do that to a certain extent. But look, if I look at my own career with, you know, objective eyes, I've had lots of lucky breaks. Now, if, if I'd been useless at my job or utterly lazy, then I probably wouldn't be where I am now. There are, you know, there are a lot of really good journalists who are unemployed these days. This is a tough industry that's been basically in decline for several decades. So I do think I am proud that you know, I am where I am, but 
I'd be lying if I said I hadn't had many lucky breaks, like that job in Dubai. That was just pure chance that I was basically, I'm not quite lazy, but bored one night at The Guardian and was looking at the job ads. Uh, That job was not a great job, but actually was a great training ground because I just had to work my socks off. So I had to learn a lot about finance very early on. And other people have like a slower learning curve. Mine was steeper and it was intense, but that was quite good. And then I just happened to apply for a job at Bloomberg News because, frankly, they just needed anybody who was not an idiot and who spoke fluent Norwegian and English. So then I got a job covering Nordic economics for Bloomberg, again, purely because I was the right person at the right time. Then I applied for a job at the FT back in the Middle East. That's how I ended up here. And again, pure luck. I mean, essentially, I saw the FT was launching a Middle East edition. I wrote a cold email to the Middle East editor, Rula Khalaf, and misspelled her name in the email. She has not yet discovered that. Um, and said, look, hey, if you ever need anybody, um, yeah, I'd be really interested. I'd love the FT. Being a Middle East correspondent would be a huge dream. And she answered. And what I later learned as well is that Rula, and I love it a bit, she's just one of the best people I've ever worked with. She's now the editor-in-chief of the FT. But she's not great with email. And she'd had lots of applications from, frankly, more qualified candidates, people who spoke fluent Arabic, which I certainly didn't. But she just happened to be sitting in front of her email that day when I emailed. So she saw my CV. She thought, well, this guy looks fine and he'll probably be cheap. Let's just get him in. So then two weeks later, I was in back in Abu Dhabi, in Dubai. So again, it was luck. Um, and I think a lot of people forget that side of things because it's always easy to think of any success as your own triumph and every failure is somebody else's fault. And quite often there, there's serendipity or bad luck involved in both. Good point. I think you said previously that some part of, or some of the best part of working for FT is the freedom and flexibility. Are there other things that are truly a joy that makes it, makes working for FT like a great experience? Well, some of it is, you know, to be entirely honest, it's just, it's an ego boost. The Financial Times is a very prestigious newspaper and has luckily also made a fantastically successful transition to the digital era. So there's just this ego involved. It's it's undeniable. You're proud to work at such a prestigious newspaper. Uh, The flexibility, I mean, that varies a lot between jobs. The FT is definitely, I would say, more flexible than most other major uh, news organizations. Uh, Just by culture, it's always been a little bit that way. It's also hierarchy-wise, very flat. This is something that, you know, for a lot of Norwegians, we don't appreciate that much, but Norwegians are quite unhierarchical. Uh, we like having flat org structures, both in actual structure and in culture. You know, it's completely okay for you to joke around and, josh and joke with your boss. And the FT is quite similar as well, which just worked really well for me. That you, you know, There are limits, of course, but broadly speaking, you know, you work right next to all the top people and it's helpful and supportive and collaborative and that's just a great place to work so i really enjoyed that part as well uh i've had jobs that have been very unflexible and right now i'm lucky to have an insanely flexible job so long may that continue i mean that's probably also a reason why you're sitting in norway right now for the last years 
Exactly. I mean, so I was born and raised here in Oslo at Smirsta. Um, and, you know, I didn't know if I'd ever come back home, but then I had kids. And there's a bit like, you know, salmon swim upstream to lay their eggs where they were born. I think most humans are a little bit the same. I had suddenly was overcome with a near biological urge to have my kids grow up roughly where I grew up as well. But more importantly, to grow up close to their grandparents. I had just phenomenal grandparents who I was very close to. And I wanted my kids to have that same relationship. Uh, so my wife and I, we were in New York at the time, but we felt, you know, let's move by the time our daughter basically was going to start school. And, and luckily the FT agreed I think they would have preferred me to do one of these roaming correspondent jobs from the mothership in London or New York or, or Hong Kong. But in reality, you know, I said, look, if I'm going to have to travel a lot, then we need childcare. And if I'm in Oslo, it's free in the form of grandparents. And if I'm going to cover the world, like, you can just as easily do it from Oslo. And the FT is fairly flexible and, and progressive and things like this, even before the COVID era. But I, I will say that as, as nightmarish as COVID was, it did kind of, it helped prove that this model works. Because I think it was working for me even before COVID, but it required me really working my ass off, really, to kind of prove that this is, this is fine. You won't even notice I'm not actually in the office office. But when COVID hit, it kind of proved to everybody that this is completely viable. And I'm a, I'm a pro office person, but I think that's you know, something that we should maybe all remember that not all jobs have to be in the office. Some jobs probably should. And I, you know, I, I miss colleagues having them in person, but, but I'm glad I can be here in, in the FT's headquarters at Mangledu. Let's dive into, into your book. Uh, I mean, how early did you had, how early did you get the idea of writing it and what set you off to actually say, okay, I'm going to write this book. Uh, a little bit serendipity. Uh, so at the FT, you know, we're not, we don't have as many journalists, the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg. So you have to kind of be focused. Focus is really important in a lot of jobs. But I think especially with journalism, where just by the nature of the beast, you're always flitting from one subject to the next. So you have to focus on what the big stories are and just own them, really do well in them. And for me, when I was sort of leading the financial coverage in New York, so the U.S. markets editor, um, the rise of passive investing index funds was clearly and obviously one of the biggest, if not the biggest trend that was reshaping financial markets, investment bank trading desks, the investment industry, hedge funds, and so on. It was a topic that everybody had views on. And I just thought that's a great topic. So I threw myself into learning as much about it as possible and, and writing a lot about that. After a few years of doing this, I decided I wanted to really get stuck into the, the origin story of index funds. Um, and, you know, partially because I was a history buff, but I thought there could be a good story there. Because sometimes, you know, you start a story, start researching something, and it's really boring. Or it just doesn't work. You can't structure it right. But luckily, the people that invented index funds were really cool, interesting people. So suddenly you had the combination of like an important story and an interesting story. So you put those two together, you've got hopefully at least a very good article. So I wrote a magazine piece for the FT um, magazine, Weekend Magazine, long, it's a 4,000 word piece on the history of index funds and how they're changing everything essentially. And as I was writing, I did think, you know, actually this, this is my article is quite good. I'm quite critical 
quite a lot of stuff I hate that I write, I end up hating very quickly. But I thought this was interesting and good. This might even be a book. And as it happens, out of the blue, I got called by my agent now, uh, Julia, who said, hey, this would make a great book. Can I sell it for you, please? And I said, yeah, go ahead. And she basically took it around to some big publishers in the US, uh, managed to get several bids. And, uh, you know, I went with Penguin. And uh, again, shows a bit of luck. I might have written a book anyway, but Julia emailing me at exactly the right time and then selling the book just as publishers were thinking this is maybe something we should publish something on was just you know, blind luck. I mean, it's a people-driven book. So can you please introduce those pioneers and tell us something about, about them? Yes, I try to do as much about people as possible, partially because it's almost a gimmick of journalism in that like, people like reading about other people. So you can kind of explain more complex subjects through the prism of people. Sometimes it can be forced, but in this case, I just didn't have to because the characters were really interesting. Uh, I mean, I start the story of indexing with um, one of my favorite characters, which was Louis Bacalier. And he's one of my favorites because he basically died a nobody. And I love some stories. I mean, they're quite tragic, but people that essentially died in obscurity were never appreciated in their own time, but were later recognized as giants of their field. And Bacalier is today known as the father of financial economics. And a lot of the work that he did on how stocks seem to move randomly is the wellspring from which index funds eventually, many, many decades later, sprung. So his work was then picked up by you know, more famously people like Gene Farmer, who turned the random walk theory into a sort of full-blown theory for how markets function, the efficient markets hypothesis, which is controversial just because Everybody can see stupid stuff happen in markets all the time, both on individual stocks, day-to-day basis, or just in the fullness of time that, you know, the financial crisis or meme stocks or, you know, Tesla today, maybe. Um, So people often like to bash the efficient markets theory, ignoring, firstly, that Farmer has done seminal work on the fat tail risks of markets. He has shown how markets do tend to move kind of irrationally as well in the short run. And sometimes in the long run, the distribution is non-normal in the economics jargon. But also because models are just a yet helpful tool. So uh, there's a statistician called George Box who once said that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I think the efficient markets theory is a perfect example of that, that you can find tons of faults with it. It's probably wrong in a classic sense that markets aren't perfectly efficient or even semi-efficient. But it's a good enough guide to explain how markets function in that prices continue to reflect all known information and misinformation for that matter. Uh, and that keep, keep getting baked into the price. And at any given time, the price of a security is roughly where an equal number of buyers and sellers think is fair. And it's very hard, therefore, to beat in the long run. So both explained how market pricing kind of works, but also why maybe it might be a good idea to just buy or create a fund that buys all the stocks in the market rather than just try to expensively buy just the hot ones, the ones that you think are going to be hot. At this time, I think you say in the book, it's, it was a very un-American idea like to kind of make people understand how disruptive the idea was. Can you tell us a bit about the feedback the guys were getting at the start, at least? 
Well, it was a mix of howls of derision, mockery, scorn, and a little bit of anger. But frankly, like in the beginning, the idea was so outlandish that the industry really didn't care that much. Uh, so I think it's, it's definitely sort of antithetical to how Americans see themselves, but kind of antithetical to human nature, right? We all want to do better. Nobody wants to be a mediocre journalist. Nobody wants to be a mediocre podcast. Nobody wants to be a mediocre surgeon. Nobody wants to be a mediocre dustbin cleaner, right? We want to be better at what we do. It's kind of why humans have managed to crawl out of the mud and do what we've done. Uh, and it's certainly in America, like the idea of like being the best uh, is just very heavily ingrained. And embracing mediocrity, as index funds were sort of called, it wasn't just seen as lazy, it was seen as un-American. And people even printed up posters saying, stamp out index funds, they are un-American. Um, but at the beginning, people just didn't think this would ever be able to be sold. And of course, it took many decades for ordinary people to sort of cotton onto this big secret that actually most active managers do a really poor job and cost a lot of money. It was no coincidence that it was the more sophisticated investors, primarily some of the really big US pension plans, that were the first people to bankroll the very first index funds. This was an institutional game, not an ordinary retail investor game. Because they could see, this is typically the different pension plans of the split up AT&T monopoly. It used to be a monopoly, it was split up into different parts, uh, all called baby bells. Um, they could see, they were exchanging notes, and they could see, look, you've invested in 50 fund managers, we've invested in 50 fund managers, and all these guys are doing is essentially swapping IBM stock or GM stock or, or Xerox stock and doing a really bad job and costing a lot of money in trading costs because trading costs were astronomical at, at the time. So overall, we're just basically hiring, as I think somebody said, hiring a bunch of monkeys that are just swapping bananas all day long and taking charging a lot of money. How about we just index? So that's how it started. Uh, but it took many decades before it really sort of erupted into it and became a phenomenon. If we fast forward today, I, I don't know if I uh, remember the correct amount, but is it something like 80 cents per dollar goes goes into index nowadays? Or It varies a lot between asset class to asset class. So that definitely sounds right in equities. In fixed income, it's not been that much until very recently. So right now, I think fixed income ETFs and, and index funds, bond ETFs and ETF index funds have taken up quite, but it is a lot. So overall, the official number, as it were, of how much money is in known index funds, a classic fund structure, either an index fund or an ETF sold by BlackRock or Vanguard or State Street is $17 trillion. So that's just monumentally big. But even that understates how big this is. Because a lot of investors, including, I suspect, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund and a lot of big pension plans, they don't really need to pay somebody else to do something that's pretty simple. So they have their own internal index strategies that aren't a fund, but still basically do exactly the same thing. And there are no, there's no good data uh, on, on this globally. But to reverse engineering some data I managed to pick up here and there, and with some assumptions on growth rates, I estimate that we're talking at least $26 trillion are in index strategies overall. 
just uh, maybe a simple question, but for people who aren't that into finance, I think it's important just to just to talk about it. The difference between an index fund and an ETF. How would you describe those two concepts and how they overlap? No, it's well? a good. Yeah, it's a great question, actually. And sometimes, you know, you'd be surprised at how many people from the finance industry get some of the nitty gritty stuff uh, wrong as well or get confused. I mean, God knows I do as well occasionally. Um, so, I mean, a fund is just basically a collection of financial securities. And throughout history, uh, most big investment vehicles have, or certainly over the past 100 years, have been mutual funds. So they're mutually owned. So you give your money to a mutual fund, they have a portfolio manager and some traders and some analysts and trying to pick the best stocks. Index funds have the same legal structure, but they just bought all the stocks in an index according to that index weight. ETFs are the next generation of that. So I kind of, depending on how you slice and dice revolution, indexing 2.0 or 3.0. An ETF is basically just an index fund that trades throughout the day is the simple answer. The slightly more complex answer is that it is very different in structure in that it's essentially like a legal wrapper, like a bag, essentially, where you can put lots of stuff in and then you create shares in that bag, create or destroy shares in that bag, depending on demand, all day long, and those shares trade on an exchange. But that means that although people associate ETFs, exchange-traded funds, so funds that trade on an exchange, exchange, with passive investing, and it is how they were born, they were initially invented to, you know, track passive index funds, um, you can do anything with them pretty much. You can put all sorts of stuff into that bag, including some pretty crappy stuff, which is the danger. But essentially the short answer is ETFs are tradable index funds that trade like a stock on some exchange, public exchange. Let's talk a bit about uh, equity index versus bond index, because obviously if you look at equities, there's a big, big case to be made that for nearly everyone, Stay passive, you get a great return. Don't try to be the top 10% in the world. But maybe in the bond world, it's a bit of a different story. Maybe the conclusion is the same, but it's a bit more complicated. How do you uh, go into that argument? No, I think it's very important nuance. And you're spot, spot on, actually. I mean, in equities, we just know it's a very liquid market. There are you know thousands of stocks that trade you know, billions of dollars worth of shares in nanoseconds constantly throughout the day. But first of all, bond indices are kind of dumb because in equities, we make indexes based on the market cap, market capitalization of a company. So Apple has a bigger weight in the S&P 500 than Under Armour because Under Armour is tiny and Apple is obviously huge. So that makes perfect sense. But in bond indices, they're weighted by how much money you've borrowed, how many bonds you have outstanding. So that obviously means that the more indebted you are, the bigger weight you have in an index, which intuitively kind of seems mad, right? Because that means that index funds are always buying the most bonds of the most indebted borrowers. And especially in some situations with certain indices, you know, United States and Japan, and to a certain extent, but lesser Europe, dominates utterly. Because Japan and the US have just borrowed such vast amounts of money. So they utterly dominate some bond indices. Same thing with investment-grade corporate bonds or high-yield bonds. Certain companies can sometimes dominate. Uh, the second issue is bonds just don't trade that much. There are improvements that the, the bond market is changing quite radically over the past few years. But you, know, you can still buy an IBM bond that might only trade a couple of times a week. 
you can buy other securities that never trade. So that inherently makes the market less efficient and should make it easier for active managers, traditionally bond fund managers like a Bill Gross or Jeff Gundluck to make money, to find profitable opportunities. In practice, however, the data is still the data. And although there are more active managers that beat their benchmarks in fixed income than there are in equities, over the long run, let's say 10 years plus, the vast majority still underperform. So in equities, I think over a 15-year period, let's say in US equities, less than 10% of fund managers manage to beat the index. In fixed income, I think the number's around 20, 30%. So you know, twice as many relative to the number of fund managers, but still on average, you are still better off investing in a bond index fund in the long run, unless you have a portfolio manager that happens to have particular expertise in very specific situations. Very interesting. Uh, as the index industry just continues to grow, uh, some have many concerns. Uh, I think you said like maybe your only concern is that a lot of power is concentrated on a few players in the industry. How can we sort of quickly summarize the typical concerns and also maybe dive into the concern you see as well? Yeah, so I, I can see the point in all of these, but there are degrees, right? There's a nuance here. So broadly speaking, I think there are four concerns. And I'm a big fan of indexing, as you can probably tell. But I think it's actually more important for fans of indexing to not be blind or sick ahead in the sand and pretend that everything's hunky-dory. That we should try to engage with you know, some of the critics that might be self-serving. They might be active managers with an axe to grind, but that doesn't mean they can't occasionally be right. But the four lines of criticism are essentially one, which I've already touched on that I do kind of agree with, is that especially with ETFs, is a very flexible legal wrapper that you can put anything into. So you can create way more sophisticated strategies with ETFs. So ETFs is almost like a Lego block. You can now not just do, let's say, US stocks and US bonds. You can do a, a pretty cool, sophisticated portfolio with just ETFs that, frankly, you would have had to be in a fairly big global macro fund to do just a couple of decades ago, or certainly 10 years ago, or 20 years ago. Um, but... You know, we humans do dumb stuff with innovation. And same with, like, with securitization, the slicing of dying of mortgage debt is actually a really great invention. That's helped lower borrowing costs, certainly for lots of Americans, but people around the world. But if you do too much with it, or you put really shitty mortgages into the, those securitizations, then all hell breaks loose, as we saw in 2008. ETFs are not like CDOs or anything like that, but people are putting some pretty funky stuff in TTFs. And I'm not sure that enough investors that buy or trade these actually have even basic understanding of what they're investing in. And that worries me, that product proliferation and innovation has gone mad in the index world. Uh, the second one is just how much power goes to the index providers. Again, something I, you know, I have some sympathy with that concern that these are index fund uh, index providers that create the indices that track. So they, in fact, control where all the money goes. Now, they do a good job. They are honest, good people that strive to be balanced and not upset things. They don't want this power. But my argument is that they have now kind of become quasi-regulators. 
they actually exert a lot of power over global capital flows. And that's something we do need to kind of watch out for at least, and maybe have a better idea of, of, of how to handle that, at least that they understand the responsibilities that come with that. The third point, which you hear the most often, is that index funds and passive investing is just wrecking financial markets. It's ruining the efficiency, it's tapping them of dynamism, or it's creating more booms and busts and so on. Um, there is mounting evidence uh, that indexing is definitely in passive funds are having a, 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 a rising impact in different ways. Though nobody can quite agree on what extent and how and where. Uh, I also think the idea that market efficiency is eroding is, is, is preposterous. Uh, I think the market efficiency is actually improving because the people, the fund managers are generally losing their job. You know, to be blunt, they're usually the less good ones. So the metaphor that I always use that I've cribbed from, from a great Wall Street analyst called Mike Babusin is a poker game. I mean, imagine if you and I got some of our friends together for a poker game. We all chipped in like, a couple hundred kroner and started playing. You'd normally expect our worst friends to lose out first and go home. But that doesn't make the poker game easier. It makes it harder because the remaining players are the smarter ones. And it's kind of like in financial markets as well. Um, I think passive is undoubtedly having an impact on markets just because of the size. But is it having a more negative impact on markets than, let's say, the invention and growth of hedge funds or private equity? or mutual funds 100 years ago. You know, markets are a dyna dynamic, complex ecosystem that are always changing. So naturally, as the animals in this ecosystem evolve and change and new ones born, old ones die, that has an impact. And passive is the biggest beast in the jungle now, one of the biggest. Um, but I don't see any evidence so far that indicates that the downsides are even remotely compared to the very tangible, real upsides that we are all saving across the world, directly and indirectly, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, in the trillions indirectly. The fourth point that, that you allude to is this, this what I call gigantism. Um, we have this in many industries these days, that because of like lots of mergers and acquisitions, uh, there's been lots of concentration happening in many industries. And in some industries, especially technology, we know there are some sort of natural oligopolies or even monopolies. You know, There is no Facebook rival. There is no Facebook 3.0 or anything like that. Um, investing is different. It's still fairly fractured compared to many other industries. But the economics of index funds means that the bigger you are, the cheaper you can create and produce these index funds and the cheaper they can be sold. So they, because they're entirely commoditized, you don't care the difference between a Fidelity or a BlackRock or Vanguard SP 500 fund, they're exactly the same. You just care about the cost. It means that the big will become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And already we're at the point where the big three in the US, State Street, BlackRock and Vanguard, together cast on average 25% of all votes in US S&P 500 companies. That's, that's a huge block of corporate power that they've accumulated. And in the coming decades, we're talking about a, a future where it is entirely conceivable, those big three, but in reality, it's BlackRock and Vanguard are just so much bigger and growing quicker than everybody else, that they will enjoy de facto control over most listed companies in America and the wider world. 
And although this is an oligopoly that benefits us, uh, that kind of concentration makes me very uneasy. And it certainly made Jack Bogle uneasy. He was one of the founders, the founder of uh, Vanguard. But I've spoken to people at like many other index companies and certainly other asset managers. And this is the, the kind of the intangible, theoretical worry that really does worry them. Uh, it's it's something that like they will quite admit. Yeah, we we get why people are concerned about this thing. We just don't know what what should we do. Should we just break them up? I mean, that actually harms us as consumers. It mean more expensive investment products for us. But it's something I think we shouldn't be blind to. But we just need to keep an eye on and make sure that any sort of downsides are quickly recognized and addressed if they do crop up. Makes sense. Uh, let's switch uh, gear a bit. Looking at your book, obviously you've written a great story, people that read it, enjoy it, but just curious, being a first-time author, one part is, is also, you know, one part is obviously writing the story and that you're happy with the result. How hard has it been to figure out the distribution? Because obviously this is a niche theme. So how has that been, you know, trying to think about distribution? And I, I guess there are many lessons there and still lessons to be learned because it's fairly new, the book. No, it's it's a great question, actually, because, I mean, it's something that, I mean, it has no great answer uh, because I, I wrestled with this and for several years in the process, but even before writing it and researching it. Um, I mean, so for me, it's the issue that all industries, all jobs have a tendency to be a little bit inbred. We, we develop jargon to kind of keep outsiders at bay. We almost deliberately make some things seem more complicated and difficult and off-putting than it really needs to be. Finance is certainly one of those areas. It is just inherently fairly complex. So people are kind of almost on purpose, but certainly also inadvertently kept at arm's length. They don't have an understanding. They don't want to understand. So I think one of the most important things for me as a financial journalist as well is, you know, I do write for the people that read at the FT. I write for my sources, as we say sometimes. But it's also important that when there is something genuinely important, that you try to write it for other people. So when I was at Bloomberg News, um, I can't remember if it's Mike Bloomberg, the founder of the company, or Matt Winkler, who was his first Titanic editor-in-chief, who had an art called Agatha. And Agatha was apparently... Very, very, very smart and very curious, but knew nothing about finance or economics. And the whole motto of Bloomberg was that we were writing for Aunt Agatha. So even at Bloomberg, the point, the theoretical reader we should always have in mind is somebody who's smart and curious. So don't talk down to them. Don't pretend that they're idiots, but don't expect that they know anything about what you're writing about. And I think that's a fairly good mental model and one I've tried to have with this book in that clearly it is going to be way more, uh, resonate more with certainly anybody in, phys- in finance. Uh, but I was hoping it would also resonate with people in the wider business community because it's just, I think, a really good business story about a new technology, the index fund, that was spat upon in its first years, but slowly took over and changed the world. Because the index fund is essentially just a new technology. So I think it's a very, it's a broad-based technology story. And the corporate infighting and the mergers and the fights, the deal-making that took to kind of push it at the center of the world, the financial world, I think is interesting. And, you know, I wanted my parents to be able to read it and not give up. 
So that was also, you know, one of my aims. What's the most constructive feedback you have received so far? I saw one comment that maybe isn't constructive, more like a comment that they felt it was a bit US centric versus maybe the UK or whatever. But obviously that's sort of a decision you have to make as an author. But did, have you received any constructive feedback that you've actually found really valuable? Um, yes. I received that right at the beginning uh, of the process. And I'll mention the, the, the US centrism, yes. Yeah. So there's lots of criticism that sometimes I agree with it. So I'll take this off that I don't agree. That it's US centric, yes. But fundamentally, this was an invention that was born and grew up and has gone the furthest in the US. So I did think about having more international perspectives, but it would have felt like you were shoehorning things just so they would feel not ignored, essentially but they weren't essential to the story. So actually, I don't regret that because it would have been made it a messier, a harder to read book with just more characters and more names to keep on top of. The stuff that I think has been interesting, and people haven't mentioned that much, but bond in, in, in index funds, and bond ETFs. I do have a bit of mention on, on how they can kind of break bad in the later chapters, but I think that is so radically interesting and probably potentially as big, if not even bigger change than to the equity market, to the fixed income market structure than equity ETFs and index funds were, I would have actually quite have liked to have had an entire bond a chapter on the development of those. The history of indexes as well, the index providers, MSCI, SB Dow Jones, FTSE Russell, and lots of others in, in the bond land. I have written about that interspersed through the book, but that probably would have could have arguably deserved its own chapter or two. Uh, but the best advice, and one I'll give anybody who's listening, who ever wants to write a book, came, I was having drinks, I think a couple of days after I'd gotten the book contract and I was glowing, sort of almost pregnant with expectation for my amazing book. And all my colleagues were being super nice and saying congratulations. And we're at this journalistic sort of events do. And there was a, journal, the, a journalist at the Economist, who's a friend of a friend, kind of ambled over and he'd written several very successful books. And he said, look, Robin, I'm just going to give you one piece of advice because everybody's going to tell you before and afterwards that your book is amazing. And even the criticism, they're going to like soften. And afterwards you're going to be on cloud nine and, you know, enjoy that. But the best advice I got that I'm now passing on to you is this. You only write a first book once, so don't fuck it up. And this was essentially his message that, you know, it's... (sighs) Just work hard at it. It has a permanence that is beyond what you have in journalism. And writing a book is a radically different type and style of writing uh, a newspaper article. So I write lots of long-form stuff for the FT, but even that's very different style from writing a news story. So we, I have colleagues, and I know journalists, who are just phenomenal news journalists. But if you ask them to write a long-form feature, they'd struggle. And vice versa, lots of beautiful feature writers would just collapse if they had to actually produce a 400-word news story or even a book. So I actually thought that was really horrific but important advice that made me a little bit paranoid and maybe increased my effort a little bit more through the entire process. That's a great piece of advice. Let's, uh, again, switch gear. Talking about investing in more general terms, um, obviously it's happened a lot during the last years. Probably COVID was the thing that sparked this um, interest in investing and you have Robinhood, you have GameStop, etc. Many uh, viewers and listeners are 
I would categorize them as one aspiring investors want to beat the market, want to have a career in that field. So maybe just to start off, uh, obviously we're talking a lot about the greatness of index funds, but I think it's also important for people to understand that you you actually believe in alpha. You believe that there are some people that can outperform the market. So how can we start to wrap this up? Um, yeah, so I believe there is alpha. I sadly doubt that any so people listening to this day trading have it you know it's it's the old warren buffett metaphor that if you get enough thousands of people flipping coins you're going to get some people that flip heads 10 times in a row and it doesn't mean they're amazing coin flippers it just means the laws of probability mean that also in the short run and sometimes even the long run some people can do amazingly so if i could invest my money with maybe there's a max i'm thinking if who if i could invest and they'd open their funds for just a personal allocation for Robin Wigglesworth, who would I invest in? And I think it's less than a handful of portfolio managers in the entire world that I feel confident have not just the individual brilliance, because don't forget, individual brilliance is not enough. You need an army of technologists, computer scientists, rocket scientists working with you. The future of investing is teams, process and culture and there are some places that have that that i would hate to work because it sounds nightmarish i'm thinking like places like citadel and king griffin citadel is phenomenal long-term track record he's had some bad years as well financial crisis citadel nearly went under and i don't think i'm speaking out of turn by saying that king griffin is not probably the the most nurturing kind-hearted boss anybody could ever hope to have but all he cares about is producing alpha and anything that isn't anything that might be beta masquerading as alpha he'll just cut ruthlessly away he will always like if there's a portfolio manager that's doing well he'll sack them because they well actually no all you did was ride small cap factor that's all you really did you didn't produce alpha you just happened to catch a break and buy some small cap like heavy small cap exposure at the right time for example so he cares about that kind of stuff like medallion the, the internal hedge fund at renaissance technologies I mean, this is what has made Jim Simons one of the wealthiest people in the history of mankind. You know, that fund isn't just closed to new investors. It's closed to investors and has been for over a decade because the returns were so good, but the capacity is so limited that it's only there to manage the money of senior executives or renaissance. You know, I've heard people call the money they get from that because it's capped at size, they'll move around. They call it dividends because they're so sure that Medallion will always produce profits. So if I could invest in Medallion, sure. But the numbers on day traders, and nobody likes to hear this because everybody thinks they're brilliant or they're done amazing. And certainly they had lots of people have done well in the past couple of years, you know, are abysmal. If active professional managers, people that have like, studied for years of their lives, maybe started trading and investing from when they were like 13 and think they can do this, on average suck, like they can't beat the market. That's important. People that have dedicated their lives and fund managers, though I rag on them sometimes, are incredibly smart, hardworking, humble people I respect immensely. They're a million times smarter than I am. And yet they cannot do it consistently. The numbers are unambiguous. But take that and think how much an average everyday person sitting at home can do. I mean, look, every single study from every time period over every country that I've looked at this, shows unambiguously that day traders routinely 
over time get their faces ripped off. They are the dumb money who just basically shovel alpha in the way of people like Ken Griffin and Medallion. So there's been one big study in Brazil more re most recently, which is one of the more comprehensive ones I've seen. I mean, I've seen people as well, that's just Brazil, but you know, I don't think people are dumber or smarter there. But it looked at thousands of day traders over a multi-year period. And I think something like 90% of them lost all their money. And 95% of them would have made more money if they'd worked a minimum wage job at McDonald's in Brazil. And then I think 5% of them made more money than they would have done as a bank teller, like an entry level white collar job. And only 1% actually made any decent money. And this was over a three year period. So I, you know, I don't want to sound too sort of uh, boring. I've heard people call index funds boomer spam on, on Reddit, but you know, I'm going to quote Nancy Reagan and just say, just say no when somebody wants you to day trade. When your friends want to do this, you know, I mean, put money on football for God's sake. You know, Liverpool's going to win the league. That's a way surer bet than day trading, yelling Tesla options. That's an intensive speech. Uh, I think maybe yes. uh, maybe the hard part for if we if you look at the the typical day trader, right, sitting on Robinhood, I think maybe the hard part to really understand is the amount of risk they're taking. So they look at their returns, they look at their stocks, they have a narrative, they have a story they can follow on Twitter, they can always find a reason why their stock went up, but they can't maybe wrap their head around the actual risk they are taking. Yeah, I have to admit, like, so I spent quite a lot of time on, let's say, Reddit and Wall Street bets. And there are definitely people there, well, it's only in the early days, that were fairly sophisticated. I mean, we're not talking, it wasn't like Ken Griffin posting, but like people that had work in the finance industry. Uh, increasingly, I think they've either deliberately or inadvertently taken advantage of a lot of the dumber, greedier money that's followed after them, where the sophistication, their understanding of what's going on is uh, suboptimal, let's say, to non-existence, where they will literally invent fantastical, comically insane conspiracy theories to explain why some of their favorite positions are going down. Uh, and, you know, we all want narratives and like, who am I to deny them the thrill of blaming Ken Griffin and short ladder attacks and bond melting for why AMC, a cinema chain and indebted cinema chain in an era of like online streaming might possibly be going down the drain in the long run. But I, I, I find a lot of the, um, analysis around this pretty poor. And yes, I definitely think they do not have a good understanding. And there was obviously one very tragic case of somebody didn't understanding like a, a double leg option trade and then committing suicide. Now, you know, maybe he was having issues anyway. And we, it's always tough to spec about things like that. That was definitely the trigger. But, you know, that was isolated. That's an extreme. I don't think we should necessarily, um, you know, say that, assume that is usual. But yeah. A lot of people don't understand simply like how like vol will affect the price of an option. So, you know, you might have actually put in theory the right trade on from your understanding. You might have put a put on and the stock is falling and you're still losing money for something else that's going on in the market structure you don't understand. And I see this all the time. Like I bought calls on X and the stock is going up. Why aren't my calls going up 10X? And they just don't understand it. There are smart people that do this, but you know, 
people just have to ask themselves, am I the smartest person at trading this stock, this option right now? And with people like Citadel, Jane Street, Goldman, Renaissance, Two Sigma, Millennium on the other side, I think you have to be either a little bit insane or extremely arrogant to think you're the smartest guy that's bought this position. You understand something that the sum collective wisdom of millions of professional investors around the world have just somehow missed. So yeah, yeah, I'm, I feel quite strongly that day trading is dangerous. And if I was world dictator for a day, I'd probably ban it. Yeah, but but at the same time, uh, the good part of the story is that at least you get exposure to finance. And if that is an incentive to learn more and maybe get better positions and have a more long-term view, that could be a good thing, I guess, in the end. But um, I, I wanted to, yeah. or do you have a comment on that? Well, yes, I hear this a lot from the finance industry, but it's self-serving, right? I mean, I think, People like you can genuinely believe it because you've learned from it and other people have. I know people have learned a lot from finance. You know, people in my family from Sunny Trade never cared about what I did until they started day trading. But, you know, that's a very expensive way to learn. Like getting your face ripped off by Goldman Sachs is a very expensive way to learn about finance. So you just write, read Investopedia or like my book uh, rather than like that's a very expensive course. And yes, that is happened throughout time. but maybe all these day traders will be converted to index funds once eventually the market like chokes as it happened for example in the dot-com crisis hopefully yes but i'd rather they just didn't imperil their financial futures in the process which i'm i fear that quite a lot of people are and wall street they absolutely love this like one of the reasons why it's been harder to be an active manager increasing over the past 50 60 year is because retail money disappeared from the market but we've forgotten all the lessons of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and the dot-com crisis and the financial crisis. Wall Street loves retail punters. You are the dumb money that supplies their alpha. And as retail investors dropped out of the market, because they learned they couldn't do this, it became harder and harder to be an active manager. So nobody loves the retail trading boom more than hedge funds and market makers and so on. And that's one of the things I wish people on Reddit would would kind of internalize a little bit more. Talking about index fund, I think a very good case, since we're both Norwegian, obviously you have international exposure when you write for FT. How do you feel the reputation is for the Norwegian oil fund, which seems like a very good case uh, and maybe relatable to the book as well? Yeah, so I didn't mention that. I think maybe I mentioned it obliquely in the book. Yeah, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Norges Bank Investment Management, is, you know, to a large part passive for the very obvious reasons that they know. They do have active components, typically in, in certain very specialized areas. Uh, they also, you know, have what they do, they're called enhanced indexing, where they think, like, look, we are so big and sophisticated with the we can maybe when we know something's obviously dumb, we can sort of take something out. For example, famously, they made a big deal that they took Wirecard, a German fraud, out of the oil fund before it collapsed completely. Um, so it's kind of like indexing with a, it's a, a, a slight overlay of human discretion, as it were. Um, so I think the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund has a great reputation abroad. Um, Partially also one that they've been really good at, though I think this is going to change in the coming years. It's also seen as fairly apolitical. It's not seen as an extension of the Norwegian government, which sounds weird to say that that's a good thing, but it really is. Because you don't want people thinking this is Norway doing something, that there's like some 
bureaucrat sitting at the finance ministry saying, oh, we should buy X or Y. Uh, it kind of enhances the reputation that they're seen as a neutral, sophisticated investor. Um, though, again, I think just given the scale of it and some of the challenges we either have domestically or internationally and pressures for the fund to do X, Y, and Z, I think it might be more in peril in the coming years. Um, but it's it's a fascinating institution. Agree. Uh, obviously, you have met so many people in finance. Is there anyone that you haven't met yet that you would like die for have a lunch with? Oh yeah, Jim Simons at Medallia at Renaissance. He's my sort of um, he's my my white whale. Um, he he was a just fascinating guy, uh, and uh, you know he was a you know brilliant mathematician specialized in geometry that doesn't sound like you know we all did some geometry at school but this is sort of multi-dimensional very hardcore geometry he still has like you know you know could in theory win the Nobel prize apparently at some point um but then worked as a code breaker for the department of defense during the cold war then basically because of the vietnam war he cut it, he like caused a bit of a huff so he got fired you know, this is a guy that went like motorcycling down all of the Americas and from Latin America until they ran out of money and then kind of hitchhiked all the way home to, to the US. You know, it's a pretty, you know, colorful character, chain smoker. But then he was a brilliant mathematician and thought you could use maths and computers to trade and invest better. And it took many years, but he managed to collect, you know, probably the greatest collection of non-investor investors in the history of the world. And, you know, Renaissance's long-term track record, like Renaissance's public funds, which don't have like all the, the sexiest strategies that are in Medallion, it's in-house fund, but still have done phenomenally well, had a stinky 2020, but still, you know, he's just an interesting guy who by far has had made the most amount of money of any investor in history through investing and also just you know he gives lots of money to democrats he finances scientific studies around the world he's just an interesting guy though you know his chain smoking might be a little bit off-putting i still love to have a lunch with the ft with him someday couldn't agree more um it's been so much fun having you on just final question where can people contact you yes find your book is it twitter the best way do you have a web page or yeah, if you Google Robin Wigglesworth, then you know that the upside to having such a weird Harry Potter-esque name is that there aren't that many other people with Robin Wigglesworth. Uh, so it's literally like robinwigglesworth.com as the website. You can see the book there and the links to various pre-orders. But if you just Google trillions and Wigglesworth, yeah, there aren't that many other hits that come up. And yes, I spend way too much time on Twitter. So yeah, definitely hit me up there. Uh, send me an email as well if you have any questions or criticism or, you know, Hot stock tips. I love hot stock tips. I'm only joking. I hate them. Definitely don't email me about crypto. That's the one thing. Anybody who emails me about crypto goes in my big fat book of grudges. Uh, and I take that quite seriously. Um, but yeah, I'm all over the internet, sadly. So uh, You can't say that about crypto without uh, explaining a bit. Oh, God, that's, yeah, I, I might go on an even bigger route than I do about day trading, but it's kind of the same thing. Look, I, 
I'm a technological optimist. Like my colleagues tease me. Like I mostly cover like quants as well, like Jim Simon. So I love technology and anything new. Like basically, I've never seen anybody do something completely useless with technology that I haven't instinctively loved. But years after looking at this, I failed to see any real meaningful use case for any crypto project I've seen so far. That yes, I get that there is some cool aspects of blockchain that you can use in many ways, but I still fundamentally think it's a very elaborate way of doing something that we could do with like an Excel sheet uh, or certainly some next gen Excel, Excel sheets. So I struggle with that. I think it's an entire industry built around one single purpose, which is making people afraid of losing out and taking advantage of their greed to suck more money in so the early investors can make money. Uh, there's a word for that kind of scheme that I try to avoid because all the crypto bros get very mad at me and say, have fun staying poor, that I'm salty and all that. But fundamentally, I just, I've yet to see any use case. It still looks like, it just still looks like shit. And it is, even if some parts of it end up being useful and good and valuable and maybe even revolutionary, there is so much bullshit and outright crookedness and fraud around that, that it's impossible to take the entire space seriously until it cleans up its own act. You know, people are bombarding people with internet ads and, and ads on the subway and train and, and airplanes to buy this coin and that coin. I mean, now the latest one is Floki. Like people have literally named a bullshit shit coin after Elon Musk's dog that has raised millions already. And they say it's going to be in a, a Floki ecosystem and it's going to be e-gaming and the metaverse. And they're just throwing bullshit marketing terms out there to lure dumb people to think, well, I might as well put, I missed out on Dogecoin. You know, that was like a really big, serious thing. Maybe I should put like a couple of thousand kroner on that. And it's all bullshit. And it's just people finding a new way of parting your money, you from your money and shifting into their own pockets. And I think it's at best distasteful and at worst outrageous that regulators haven't done more to protect people from their own greed in this case. So yeah, that is my very nuanced uh, view on crypto. Uh, it's very popular, I can tell you, with all my colleagues and, and friends under the age of like 40. It's very much my boomer, my, my boomer hill to die on. I mean, we'll have to save that for part part two to go <laughs> into everything you said there. But Robin, anyway, it's been so much fun having you on. Thank you so much for taking the time and best of luck with the book publishing as well. No, thanks, Christopher. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for goading me into saying mean things about crypto as well. Hi, everyone. Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you liked this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Wunheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care.